All right, if you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 1, uh, verse 1, and we will pick up where we left off last week. Uh, if you missed the last two weeks, um, we spent both of them examining um, sort of the, the preamble uh, to the, the genealogy of Jesus, uh, and, and we spent two weeks on one verse. Uh, so today we are going to be picking up the pace a bit. Um, just for fun, uh, I looked at how long it would take us to get through the book of Matthew uh, at our current pace. Uh, and there are 1,071 verses in the book of Matthew. And assuming 52 Sundays a year and two Sundays a verse, it would take just over 41 years for us to cover the book of Matthew. Yeah, I would be in my 70s. Um, so we're not going to do that. Um, we're actually picking up the pace a lot, um, and there will be some weeks in which we cover most or all of a chapter in a single Sunday. Um, but as I said, um, the last two weeks were just on kind of the, the preamble to the genealogy. I'm looking at the significance of Jesus being the son of Abraham, uh, which is weird phrasing we don't totally get, and the significance of Jesus being the son of David. So today, uh, we are covering the rest of the genealogy in its entirety, um, and I've asked uh, Amy to uh, read a passage for us.
All right, let's give it up for Amy. Wow. Well done, Amy. Um, that was exhilarating um, and confusing. Um, and, and if we're being honest, um, kind of boring, right? And as we move into the book of Matthew, um, you'll see that Matthew is a brilliant writer and uh, that, that he has structured his book in a very intentional way. Everything is done on purpose, and he brilliantly brings to life um, uh, the life of Jesus in such a way that no word is wasted, except we suspect maybe these words. I mean, he's announcing the most beautiful message that the world has ever heard, and it's bursting with grace and redemption and hope and love and resurrection. People are tripping over each other to hear this message about the kingdom. And the grand kickoff to this life-changing news is genealogy? Why on earth does Matthew include a genealogy? Why would you start your gospel with the most boring combination of words that our modern ears could possibly hear? That's the question that we're after today. And because Matthew is a Jewish author writing to a Jewish audience uh, with a heavy emphasis on the Old Testament or the Bible of Jesus' day, um, we need to work a little harder in order to understand what the original audience would have heard and experienced through this genealogy. In weeks one and two, uh, we focused on Jesus as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And this is, without a doubt, one of the primary reasons that Matthew has included a genealogy here. Jesus is the climax of Israelite history and the inheritor of its promises. And, and so Matthew wants to demonstrate that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David and that he's qualified to fulfill those covenants. And that all of Jewish history has been leading up to this moment. But there's something else that I want us to see here. There's something else embedded in this genealogy uh, that we tend to miss. Um, first off, because um, if we're being honest, when we do read the scriptures, uh, we tend to skip over the genealogy, right? I, I, I mean, we don't usually say it out loud, um, but we kind of view these as a waste of our time. Okay, I'm reading through, hit a genealogy, skip on to the next thing, and keep reading the scriptures. Uh, but secondly, if we aren't familiar with the Old Testament, and we aren't familiar with the people that are listed in this genealogy, then it won't speak to us in the way that it was intended to. So first, a few thoughts on genealogies. Uh, in our individualistic, democratic, consumeristic society, uh, we, we don't really think much about ancestry. In fact, sort of embedded in the American dream is this idea that your ancestry doesn't matter, uh, that your ethnicity doesn't matter, that your family of origin doesn't matter, that you are a free individual uh, who can achieve whatever you want and make as much money as you want and become whatever you want and achieve the dream. It, we don't think much of ancestry or where we came from. 
And so some of us know, oh, yeah, I'm a quarter Irish and a fourth German and you know, a 124th Native American and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and some of us get on Ancestry.com or whatever and kind of trace, hey, I, I kind of want to know, kind of interesting. We have, we have little glimmers of interest in our society, but for the most part, culturally, this doesn't matter. Back in the ancient world, genealogy and ancestry was in, extremely important for a number of reasons. For example, um, in ancient Egypt, your tax status was determined by your genealogy. So there were financial implications for keeping track of where you came from. In ancient Israel, which is where this text is from, you would need genealogy to prove that you were part of the community. There were implications in terms of um, some vocations and proving that you were a Levite who could serve in the Levitical priesthood. And actually, the land itself was passed down through tribe and through family. And so, so your ability to um, worship in the temple and be included in the community and have rights to land, which was then your home and your livelihood and your way to grow food, all came down to genealogy. Uh, it was so important that um, in the temple, they actually kept public records of genealogies, paying specific attention to certain lines which they anticipated the Messiah would come through. So um, genealogy, um, even aside from prophetic promises, had implications of where you would live and where you would worship and what you could uh, or could not do. Additionally, in the ancient world, disclosing your genealogy and your family line was actually a matter of identity. It, you actually, your sense of self was wrapped up in which family you came from. Uh, and much of the world is, is actually still like this. A lot in, in, in the more traditional parts of the world, they're more family-oriented. And family matters, and family honor matters, and, and family genealogies actually still matter. So if you go to Africa or indigenous people in New Zealand or in other places, um, when they want to tell you who they truly are, it's going to have to involve some sort of genealogy, some sort of story of ancestry and family line and where they came from. So, so these things, even today, still matter. Who's your family? Where did you come from? And, and there's even this sense, not so much in America, but in other cultures, of, of a family honor that, that needs to be protected. And, and these are all rooted in this idea that, that family matters. And so I think about um, honor killings, which are more common in more um, traditional family-oriented cultures and religions. And the basic idea of an honor killing is that if you sin in such a way that it defiles our family's honor and brings in public shame on us, then you should be put to death. That, that our family honor is so important that the only way to release us from that shame um, is actually to, to edit you out of the family, so to speak, to, to take you out of the genealogy. It, it, that we have to, there's a sense that we, we have to clean this up. We have to erase this somehow, which, which sounds shocking to us because we're not as family-oriented. We would say, wait a second, isn't that your daughter? And they would say, yeah, but our our Honor is more important. She needs to die. That, that's the idea behind a, an honor killing. It's this, it's this form of like purging 
your family and your family line of, of sin and, and screw-ups. And they're rooted in the idea that family is vital and that family line and honor uh, are central to identity. And so there are, are elements of this within the ancient Near Eastern um, Israelite culture. Family was important. Family honor mattered. Um, death or exclusion were not beyond the realm of possibility. And so to share one's genealogy was a matter of identity. Um, so even in, in the absence of any sort of prophecies that we've talked about the last few weeks, you would still keep track of your genealogy. Additionally, in ancient Israel, genealogies were um, occasionally used as a way to kind of reframe or retell um, history and historical events. And, and in these cases, genealogies were more of an art um, than they were a science. For example, um, Matthew um, does not include every generation in his genealogy. He, he actually kind of handpicks some of the people, choosing some and excluding others. And, and he's telling history and highlighting certain things. And he's chosen just a certain number of generations that, that in the Jewish world um, would have signaled a number of completion. So there was all these generations from Abraham to Jesus, and it was completed with the arrival of the Messiah. And, but because Matthew chose certain people and left out other ones, and it actually gives him the ability to communicate something through the genealogy. And, and in fact, he has embedded part of the gospel message into this genealogy. And so before we move on into the book of Matthew, I, I just want us to slow down this week and kind of unearth what that message is before we go on to the birth of Jesus. Uh, so what I want to do over the next couple minutes is I want to kind of run through the genealogy, and thank goodness we're actually not going to look at every name. You can take a deep breath. Um, but I'm going to highlight some of the men, and then when we're done with that, we're going to shift focus and highlight some of the ladies as well. So starting from the top of the genealogy, we have uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are all um, very well known within the scriptures. They're the patriarchs, and all of these men are imperfect, um, but they're framed in the scriptures as sort of the, the early heroes of the faith. Uh, but already, at this point, um, things are a bit weird because usually um, the blessing and the favored line would pass down through the firstborn son. And already, we can tell that's not happening. Um, neither Isaac or Jacob were the firstborn. Uh, and in fact, Jacob's name literally means um, deceiver. And he deceived his brother and deceived his father and sort of stole or hijacked the, the blessing. It, he stole the, the, this favored family line through which God was telling this story. Uh, and in fact, um, God still honors Jacob, and, and the story continues. Jacob is eventually renamed Israel, and Jacob has 12 sons. These 12 sons um, become the 12 tribes of Israel. And as you're reading the story, a ton of attention is given to Joseph, uh, who again isn't the oldest, but he's the favored son. And Joseph has um, chapters uh, devoted to him. 
Uh, and, and it kind of examines his story and his faithfulness and his trust in God. And God uses him in this powerful way in shaping the story of Israel. And so you would assume, well, of course, Joseph is going to be the one to inherit the family line and be in this blessed line through which the Messiah will come. But, but then we're kind of caught off guard again um, because it, the, the Messiah comes through the line of Judah. And Judah uh, is far less admirable than his brother Joseph. And in fact, as we read the story, um, he's kind of immoral uh, and, and selfish. And so right in the middle of these incredible chapters about the story of Joseph, the, the author kind of like, pauses and does this sidebar uh, about Judah and Tamar. And, and Tamar was, uh, was Judah's um, daughter-in-law, married to Judah's son. Um, but unfortunately, his son died, uh, and, and that left Judah with responsibilities for Tamar. And the way to provide for her and to continue the family line would have been to um, marry Tamar to one of his other sons. And, and instead, Judah refuses to do that and kind of um, ignores her and casts her out, which puts Tamar in a, in a terrible position. And, and so in order to get justice, um, Tamar actually dresses like a prostitute and sleeps with Judah and becomes pregnant. And then when um, Judah's pregnant daughter-in-law shows up at his doorstep, Judah says, she should die. She should be put to death. Does Judah sound like a good guy or a bad guy? Yeah, not, not so good. And so, in fact, what happens is that, um, it, that uh, Tamar is pregnant, and she um, conceives and has twins, uh, and she gives birth to Perez, who once again is um, not the firstborn, but inherits this family line, and uh, the messianic line continues. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, Judah and Tamar. I, I think that's an episode that we would all rather forget about. And we would rather sweep that under the rug and, and move on. But God doesn't, interestingly enough. And, and so this line continues, and in fact, a lot of the men in this line were less than admirable. Um, here's just a few others to highlight for the sake of time. Solomon um, starts off really strong, but eventually ends up with a harem of foreign wives who lead him into idolatry. All of that, really bad. Ahaz um, also worshipped idols. Uh, Manasseh uh, was the king of Israel, and he, quote, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And Jeconiah and all his brothers, who are mentioned in the genealogy, all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is a very quick way of summing up things that are unspeakably in, in worshiping idols isn't, isn't simply praying to someone else. And sometimes it would involve child sacrifice. These things that are, are, are abhorrent to God. And, and so th- this pattern kind of continues through the family line, riddled with imperfection. Now, Uh, That is a brief sample of the men who are are in this line. But now uh, I want to turn our attention to the women. Because traditionally, 
Um, women were not mentioned in genealogies at all. So uh, if Matthew mentions a woman, um, he's actually going out of his way to do that. Um, and, and so we should pay attention. It would have jumped out at the original audience, reading through person after person after person, generations of, of fathers and sons, and then little mentions of, of other women on the side. And so um, the original audience would have said, what, what's going on here? Like, why, why are these women being mentioned? Um, and here are the women that he mentions by name. Uh, Tamar, who I mentioned just a moment ago. Rahab, uh, Ruth, Uriah's wife, um, who's Bathsheba. And Mary, the mother of Jesus. But why include women? And why include these women? And why not include other women who were actually left off this list, matriarchs and, and heroes within faith? It's as if he's going out of his way to say, oh, hey, just so you know, side note, Rahab was involved here. And, oh yeah, just so you know, um, Ruth was his mother. And there are several ways in which we can view these inclusions. One is that these women are all celebrated in their own right. Uh, That uh, Tamar is actually um, vindicated in her story and comes out more righteous than Judah. And by faith, she continues um, the messianic line. Um, Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, also plays an important role in continuing the line through which the Messiah will come. Um, Rahab is actually cited multiple times in the New Testament as a model of faith and trust and good works. Uh, And Ruth is a woman of noble character uh, who is um, kind of mentioned almost in connection uh, with um, the Proverbs and and wisdom. Faithful to Israel, faithful to her mother-in-law. And of course, uh, Mary has her own story um, that's beautiful full of faith uh, and trust. They are each um, heroes of the faith in their own way that um, occasionally show extraordinary faith and help shape the future of Israel. So so that's one way to view the, the, the reason that these women were included. But there's also scandal here. Tamar as I mentioned earlier, um, it does come out more righteous than Judah, but her story uh, is riddled with kind of lies and deception and this kind of what appears to us very strange, semi-incestuous behavior, and there's blackmail and, and all of this stuff. Uh, Rahab was um, not only a prostitute, and she was a, a, a Gentile, a non-Jewish prostitute, a foreigner. Um, Uriah's wife doesn't even get her name mentioned, which is interesting that these other women are mentioned by name. Um, Bathsheba isn't. She's simply Uriah's wife, which in context um, just kind of adds insult to injury. Because if you know the story, and we talked about David a, a lot last week, but David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. Uh, an, an incredible man of integrity and faith, a man after God's own heart. And yet David's um, greatest, um, sort of most appalling sin that's recorded in the Scripture is that David 
um, lusts after Bathsheba, um, that he forces Bathsheba to come to his palace where they sleep together, and Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And, and then David starts this whole cover-up scheme to make it look like it wasn't him. And when that fails, he has Uriah murdered. So, so that's not good for anyone, let alone the king of Israel, a man celebrated, even as Matthew is writing these words, highly celebrated and exalted. And, but, but look how he highlights it. He could have just marched through the genealogy. We have David, and then we have his son Solomon. And wait a second, pause here, because Solomon actually came out of this uh, adultery murder scandal. Yeah, yeah, that, that wasn't just any woman who gave birth to him. That was Uriah's wife, another man wife. Scandal again. And then, of course, we have um, Mary, uh, who is an unwed and pregnant teenager, engaged to a man who is not responsible for her pregnancy. And and if we think that's scandalous today, you have to ramp that up in your mind. It is difficult for us to grasp what a scandal that was in this culture. Now, we need to take a step back for a minute, and I want us to think about the implications of all of this. Because God got to choose which family he was going to be born through. You and I did not get to choose our family of origin. In fact, no human being ever has. But God chose these people. I mean, in order to fulfill prophecy, um, it, it had to come through Abraham and David in one way or another. But, but there were a, a myriad of different possible combinations. And, and so you kind of have to picture um, God uh, outside of time, looking at all of these possible choices and all of these families to be born into, and, and he chose this one. And and, and that kind of changes everything. Because we didn't get to choose our family of origin, so in the West, our stories about family of origin are often stories of overcoming our family of origin. We get lemons and we make lemonade. We do the best with the cards that we've been dealt. And we were born into poverty and we rise to achieve the American dream. These are the stories we tell. Our goal is to overcome the hindrance that is our family. But that's, that's not what's going on here. This is a different story. God actually chose to become human, and, and he's writing the story. And, and that changes the way we need to view this genealogy. God could have written this story any way he wanted. And yet this was the line, and these were the people that he chose. It, it almost evokes in my mind um, the imagery of like picking teams in gym class. You remember that? Where you have like first captain and second captain, and everybody's lined up. Um, and they start calling out names, but it's always like the good-looking, athletic, 
popular kids who are like wearing Abercrombie, they get called first and oh shoot, okay. And and over time they keep calling out names and and you're still standing there and, and what are you thinking as the names are being called out? Lord, please don't let me be last. Just don't let me be the last one standing here. That's all I'm asking. And that, in a sense, is what we're dealing with. That this family line should have been picked last in spiritual gym class, okay? It, n- nobody wants to associate with, with, with these people. That this... That, in fact, many of the people on this list are the exact people you would want to white out of your genealogy. If they had made a habit of honor killings in the ancient Near East, I'm not sure that this line would have survived. Some of these people would have at least been in the conversation. We can't stand for this. We can't accept that amount of shame. On, on our family. And, and, and this should be shocking to us because God, the holy God, the one who's, who's wrapped in light, is choosing to step into humanity. And he says, yeah, yeah, this will work. That, that I'll, I'll choose these people. I mean, if I'm God's like advisor in, in holiness, or whatever, I'm, I'm saying, God, you need to enter the perfect human line. All Israelite, all good, outstanding, moral, righteous people, and, and you should be born into a palace. That's what I would say. But, but that, that's not what's going on here. I mean, a, a pregnant daughter-in-law, a prostitute, David's greatest mistake, a whole line of men and kings who did unspeakable evil in the eyes of the Lord. This shame is almost unbearable. If God's first captain in gym class, he's he's making some really sketchy decisions here. And so as you're standing on the line, you're saying, really, God? You're, you're, You're choosing her? She can't kick a dodgeball. Like, what, what are you thinking? Like, him? Like, he's a deceiver. He's a liar. He spent decades in, in sexual addiction. What are you doing? What are you trying to say? What, what story are you trying to tell? It turns out that before Mary ever conceived, God made a choice. And in some ways, this choice and this genealogy is as scandalous as a pregnant, unwed teenager. I'd like to imagine that if I was a first century Israelite and I was reading through Matthew's gospel, um, it would be a bit of a a roller coaster ride, right? This is how it starts. Here is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The son of Abraham, awesome. The son of David, double awesome. Now your heart is pounding. This could be the one. This could be the the promised royal king, the the seed, the Zerah of Abraham. And if that doesn't make sense, 
listen to the podcast. But you're seeing all of these prophecies line up. And this, this could be it. This could be the Messiah, the one that we've waited for. And then you start tracing down this list, and, and your heart just starts to sink. Really, God? This is the line through which the Messiah not only is it riddled with failures, it, it's not even pure Israel. You jump back to the list of the women. You, you realize that all of these names that are listed, all of these people, Mary excluded, that they're all Gentiles and foreigners. The, these, these people shouldn't be in the mix at all. And to make matters worse, every single one of them is the story of a Gentile foreigner who they saw as the enemy, showing more faith or hope or trust or integrity than the Israelites were showing. That's, that's what these demonstrate, that, that Tamar had, had faith and, and was invested in this family line continuing, that, that Rahab had faith that God would give the Israelites the land. When they didn't have faith, he would give them the land. And, and Ruth and her character and Uriah and his integrity. And so this is like doubly insulting if you're Jewish. Not, wait, all of these foreigners and prostitutes and all of this, oh, and oh yeah, they were the ones who were showing faith when you weren't. What, what, what's God doing here? he doing with this this genealogy? I would argue that Jesus is making an incredible statement about the inclusivity of his family and the radical grace of his kingdom. This demonstrates the nature of love for the lost and the broken. But right here in the opening verses, based on who he chooses to be related to, this is God's choice, and therefore God's telling us something about his nature and his mission. It's almost as if God is saying, these are my people. The prostitutes and the sinners and the tax collectors and the screw-ups and the unfaithful and those who slip into doing evil. This is my family. Because Jesus didn't come for the healthy, but he came for the sick and the lost. And in fact, as we look over this, Jesus did not come from the healthy. He came from the sick and the lost. And yet, in a sense, he names them and he claims them and he identifies with the outsiders. Many of these people are the very people the religious elite wanted to exclude from Israel, exclude from the kingdom of God. The washouts and the dropouts and the seemingly blatant failures. And right up front, God is saying, you're not a failure. Your greatest sins and screw-ups and habits and lifestyle, none of it compares. It, all of it is overwhelmed by my grace. All of it can be used for my glory. It, it, it's almost as if God is walking through history and he's saying, I can use you and, and I can work through that mistake 
and you're not too far gone, and that's not going to stop my kingdom from coming. And all of you who, who, who are being judged and, and marginalized and ignored, come to me. It's the burden I ask you to, to carry is light. All of you are outcast and rejected. Come to me, and you'll have a place to belong. In fact, in my grace, you become family. The prostitute alongside the pure. Those full of integrity right there alongside the compromised. The honored along with the shamed. The Israelite along with the outsider. And each of them equally forgiven and cleansed and restored. All of this had the potential to be shocking and offensive to Matthew's Jewish audience. But it was shocking and offensive in the same way that Jesus' actions would be shocking and offensive. He was known as the friend of tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. He talked with the woman at the well who no one would talk to, and the Roman oppressor, and the impure, and the children, and the women, and the slaves, and everyone who was supposed to be on the outside. The mission of Jesus and the heart of God for humanity was forecast right in the genealogy. God's heart for all people. Everyone is invited to be part of this family. Everyone. You have a seat at the table. And so it's not that God's holiness repels him from sinners. It's actually that God comes to us in his holiness to heal our fracturedness and our brokenness and make us whole again. And your moral record, if this tells you anything, it's that your moral record has nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you feel from God or what you believe about him in this moment. It doesn't matter how you dress or how much you weigh or what other people say about you. None of that is going to keep you from the kingdom. None of it. The door is wide open. He has chosen you. And if you're anything like me, you have a history that that looks more like the genealogy than it does like Jesus. When I look back at my past, I have more mistakes than I can count. Lying, stealing, and sexual sin, and the list goes on. That's that's this. Spiritually speaking, most days, I think I should be picked last. Gym class. But it's not my choice. It's not your choice either. It's God's. Your past and the things that you've done are as locked in time as this reality. And yet, God comes to us in his grace. You can't can't change it. You can't alter it. You can't erase it. And, And yet, the grace of God comes to you. You're chosen. You're loved. You're sought after. You're desired. God wants you, with all of your history and all of your past and all of your mistakes and all the things you think about yourself, he wants you 
be part of his family. And, and as we say yes to that, surrender to God, and become part of his family, we take the seat at a very unusual table. You and I are grafted into his and, and so as, as you look through this genealogy and, and you look to your right and to your left, you will see nothing but imperfect people being accepted and loved and adopted in by the grace of God. And this leaves no room for judgment. We, we can't judge them. We can't judge one another. You cannot judge yourself. If you've given your life to Jesus, you are forgiven and cleansed and adopted into this family of imperfect people. There's, there's, no, there's no honor killings in the kingdom of God. There's no cleaning up this genealogy. There's no cleaning up your past or cleaning up your present before you approach him. We come to him as we are, and, and we accept his grace over all of our failures, for all of our mistakes, over the things we're going to do tomorrow. None of us deserve it, and none of them deserve it. That's the point. So we start by accepting God's grace, which is actually uncomfortable and stunning and life-altering. And, and as we do, we're opening up a whole new realm of possibility. You are now a part of Jesus. And even though that, that past, his genealogy is already written. The future of his family is wide open. And everyone is invited to participate. And maybe you don't even feel qualified to represent Jesus to others and invite them into the family. Maybe you don't feel like you can play a pivotal role in Jesus' plan for this city. But none of those people were qualified. And, and that's the other half of the point. It, there's room for you, and you belong. There's room for them out there, and they belong. Even if you think they shouldn't belong wants them to be part of his family.